All right, page seven there, um, we've got, we, we had these concluding remarks from Peter um, as it finishes up his letter. Uh, 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. God, help us to uh, see wonderful things from your um, holy book. Help us to see ourselves in it. Help us to open ourselves to your instruction, your conviction, your encouragement. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, meet every single person where we are and apply, uh, and apply this to our situations. Um, yes, our minds, but also our hearts, our emotions, and ultimately to our lives. Um, pray that you would bless the preaching of the word and help me to be faithful to your passage. And forgive me where I fail you and uh, cover over it with the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are, we're coming, this is, uh, this is it. This is these last uh, three verses of First Peter. And, um, and you know, it, it ends with what seems to be a, um, um, I guess you could say, uh, unremarkable ending. Um, last week we concluded with the, uh, to, to, to Christ be the dominion forever and ever, amen. And it felt like he should just end it there. <laughs> but, um, but he has to talk about Sylvanus and, uh, and Mark and she who's chosen in Babylon. Um, and it seems on the surface like this is just kind of a customary wrapping it up, final greetings, ending to a letter. Uh, there's not much to see here. Um, but actually, I want us to see tonight that in the normalcy and the mundane of the, of the letter ending this way is actually something incredibly powerful for us to see here. Uh, not, because, um, not because necessarily of... of a common ending to a, to a normal letter, but because it's united to something greater. And because of its, uh, because of its union to something greater, um, it becomes incredibly significant. I'll illustrate it this way. Um, let me ask you a couple questions. And you know, now that I'm saying this, this illustration worked great uh, at Rapid Run, and I don't think it's gonna work really well here now that I think about it, but alas, we'll try it. Uh, let me ask you a couple questions. Uh, to those of you, this is the problem, to those of you who are alive or old enough to remember. Uh, September 2001, raise your hand if you can remember 2001. Okay, we're good. How many, who cannot remember 2001? Okay, just ginger hands, okay. All right, good. All right, well, we're good then. All right. Just, just trust me if you can't remember these. Uh, to, those, to those of you who are alive and old enough to remember, what were you doing on September 10th, 2001? Anybody answer that question? Um, I bet you have no idea. That's the point. And why should you? It's a random day more than a couple decades ago. And then if I were to ask you the question, okay, but what about the next day? What were you doing on September 11th, 2001? Um, I bet every single one of you, again, who were alive and old enough to remember, could answer that question. You, you, remember, um, you remember where you were. You remember who you were with. 
Uh, you probably remember conversations that you had. You probably remember uh, feelings and emotions that you were experiencing. Now, why is that? Well, because what happens is the mundane details of that day are connected to one of the most significant events in our country's history. There's nothing special about that day. It's just another September 11th. You were just going about your day. But because that day is united as something historically significant, you can't forget that day. And you won't be able to forget that day the rest of your life. So as we conclude our season in 1 Peter, like I said, we're doing it with a rather unremarkable passage. Just some names, a few customary commands, and some parting thoughts. Um, and yet, this ordinary passage is connected to something incredibly extraordinary, which makes what seems so insignificant come alive with significance. And I want us to appreciate that and apply that to our lives this evening. So here are the, here are the two things I I'm going to ask us to consider. We're going to look at ordinary, extraordinary people and ordinary, extraordinary commands. And that'll make sense as we go through it. Let's look at the people here. Uh, one of the uniquely compelling features of the Bible, and if you're checking Christianity out uh, or new to it, um, maybe you, maybe you uh, haven't um, had anybody explain this to you, or maybe if you're a Christian for a long time, you, you, never, you just take this for granted. But one of the unique things about the Bible is that it is not merely the revelation of a religious prophet. Okay, that's, that's every other sacred book. So Muhammad goes into a cave. Um, he uh, supposedly meets with God, gets a revelation, and out comes the Quran. Uh, Joseph Smith finds golden tablets and, and uh, translates those into a message from God, and out comes the Book of Mormon. That is not the nature of the Bible. The Bible is, is, is very different, very unique as a, a sacred text. Um, it is not the words of a prophet that he, ha he or she has supposedly received as an inspiration from heaven. In contrast, we view our prophet himself as the revelation. Um, Jesus is the living word of God. Jesus is God's revelation to man. In fact, we believe Jesus is the incarnation of the full revelation of man to man because Jesus is God incarnate. Therefore, our scriptures are a compilation of historical documents that testify and witness about the person, Jesus Christ. He didn't leave us writings. In other words, he left us witnesses. And these witnesses, their testimony about him, this is what we view as sacred scripture. And we would even include the Old Testament in that. Because um, if you read the Old Testament rightly, then you will see the Old Testament as historical documents that testify to the coming Jesus. Now, of course, we believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. We, we believe that here at this church. We believe the Bible is inspired, infallible word of God. But we believe God inspired scripture through real people in real historical context, in real situations, with real personalities and writing styles and all these different things. Now, one of the beautiful things about a doctrine of inspiration like this, and this is why I'm saying all this, I'm getting to our passage now. One of the beautiful things about a doctrine of scripture like this is that normal people like you and like me show up everywhere. It's not Jesus writing his um, vaunted heavenly revelation from on high that is completely disconnected from real life and real people and real situations. It's a fisherman, Peter, 
who was a witness of Jesus, writing a letter to exiles, applying Jesus to their very real situation. And nowhere does this unique nature of Scripture come out more than in these little parenthetical anecdotes that you see in Scripture like we have today. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. We believe that is as much the inspired, infallible word of God as last week's to Christ be dominion forever and ever. Last week was, was last week sounded like a sacred book. To Christ be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then I said the word of the Lord and you said thanks be to God. And then this week I said, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, the word of the Lord. And you said, thanks be to God. Which means that we believe that God inspired and, 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 and that this is the words of God for us to be applied to us. And I want us to appreciate that as a beautiful thing, a significant thing. Who is Silvanus? Another name is for Silvanus is Silas. Most scholars assume this is Silas, who appears elsewhere in, the, in, in uh, Acts and Paul's writings. That's probably who, who it was, but we don't know for certain. We just know this is the guy that Peter, when it says, I write through you, this is the guy that Peter handed his letter to, and this guy took it around to the churches in exile. He took the letter around and distributed it around. So we don't know. We just know this is the guy that Peter chose to take his letter around. Who's Mark? Uh, we don't know. Most assume it's John Mark um, who wrote the Gospel of Mark that we studied for the past few years, but we don't know that for sure. The reason people assume that is because uh, Peter is the uh, apostolic source, the eyewitness testimony behind the Gospel of Mark. So they assume that this is the same Mark, but we don't know that for sure. And even if it is Mark, we still don't know very much about him. Then we have this in verse 13. She who is at Babylon sends you greetings. The she there is not referring to, a, to, a, to an actual lady, but a church. That's how they spoke of their churches. And Babylon is referring to Rome. They, they spoke of, uh, they spoke of uh, Rome as Babylon, as their captivity and exile. And so this is Peter's home church in Rome sending greetings to the exiles, which means in verse 13, the, he's talking about a group of unnamed average Christians just like you and me. Okay, so what's the point in all this? Why am, I, why am I saying all this? The point is normalcy. And normalcy is something we desperately need to appreciate. Tell me if, tell me if you've experienced this frustration with the Bible. You read these remarkable experiences of the people of God, and it causes you at best to wonder why God doesn't do that in your life or why it seems that God isn't even acting in this way in the world today. At best, we think these thoughts. At worst, we wonder, does my life even matter? Does, does the story, the chapter that I'm living in, does it even matter? I mean, you look at all of these amazing stories and powerful works, and then there's me and you just trying to survive another week in the suburbs. Or that's, that's my life, whatever your life is. Just do another week, you know, going about our days. Keep the house relatively in order, try not to mess my kids up too much, that kind of thing. We can all just admit that life in the book of Acts looks nothing like life in the suburbs of Lexington. Well, this is why passages like ours are so important and such a beautiful part of Holy Scripture. This is why genealogies in Scripture 
are so important. You know how you, uh, New Year, um, Bible reading plan, going to read through the Bible this year, going well, and then you get to like all the names. And it's like, oh, come on. And uh, that's where we always fail, right? because you read the names, the genealogies, and all that stuff, and, and you're wondering, what, is this, what does this have to do with me? Why is this in the Bible? Why is this important? How do I even apply this to my life and all these things? Well, here's what I would say. In reality, I don't, I don't know if there's a passage of Scripture that more directly applies to your life. Because it's just name after name after name after name of people who didn't part seas and didn't take down the walls of Jericho and didn't perform miracles of healing and didn't speak in foreign tongues, just people who had their vocation, married, raised their children, rejoiced to see their grandchildren, held on to God's promises, and were buried in death. Name after name after name of people we have no idea who they are or what they did, which is incredibly freeing. I love that the Bible has an entire genre of writing that is nothing but normal people we know nothing about because it means it's completely okay to be a normal person that history will know nothing about. You don't have to... I know that the temptation is to... uh, I know that the temptation is to uh, read the Bible and apply Peter and Paul and, and Moses to your life. And uh, good, that's right, you should do that. That's, that's how you should read your Bible. Um, but it probably would be a lot healthier if you started to say, I'm not Peter. I'm one of the random dudes in the genealogy that nobody knows anything about. And that's okay. I had somebody talk to me after one of the services, uh, after one of the services at, uh, at Rapid Run. Um, he's a big fan of David Platt, and I'm a big fan of David Platt. And he asked me about the uh, book Radical. Uh, many of you have probably read that book. Um, and, he, and he said, well, what about, what about David Platt and the book Radical? And I said, yeah, I love it. Love, love, love Radical. I think it's an important, timely message for us and our church in our day. And I think it's being very faithful to Holy Scripture, just as long as you can say that I could take the same book, uh, the same Bible, and, and um, biblically write a book entitled Mundane. And even the lives in Scripture that we do view as radical um, didn't necessarily see their lives that way, which is true of the names in our passage. We see the significance of their lives. We know the significance of their lives, but you need to know that they didn't. We, on the other side of Christianity's expansion uh, throughout the world to every nation. We understand how significant their lives were, but we fail to appreciate that when they were alive, Christianity was a small, little, persecuted, fledgling movement trying to just hang on for dear life and trust that what Jesus said is true. Don't you know that they battled what you battle? You do know that, right? That they, they battle skepticism and, and cynicism about uh, whether this is going to work. Um, you know that they looked at the massive Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire whose fury is about to come down on the church in a couple years after this letter. They looked at the massive Roman Empire with all of its power and all of its resources. And then they looked at their small little local congregations You know they looked at that and said, this is impossible. You know that they were prone to doubt and despair. 
You know that these names hidden in their deepest thoughts were the same thoughts that you struggle with. You know that they wonder, am I, am I crazy? Is this crazy? I mean, what are we doing? You know that in, they had sleepless nights and, and they battled vain imaginations and fatalistic thinking. You know that they went to their graves worried about the condition of the world that they were leaving to their grandchildren. They're, they're us. They're just like us. Even Peter, who we view as the great Apostle Peter, at this point was nothing famous. He was a Galilean fisherman who encountered Jesus and decided to spend his life telling the ancient world about Jesus. In a few years, he's going to be crucified. And I guarantee you that as he closed his eyes in death, he had no idea the significance of his life. And I guarantee you that when Rome crucified him, they thought they were bearing just another insignificant, radical rebel soon to be forgotten along with all the others. And yet here we are in the summer of 2017 in a land that was undiscovered and unknown at the time that all this was taking place, talking about Peter and Silvanus and Mark and unknown members of a small first century local church in Rome. Why? Why are we talking about them? Why are we preaching sermons about them? Not because they themselves are special. They're not. They're just like you and me. But because the story and the mission and ultimately the Jesus that they are a part of is eternally special. And so what appears to be ordinary is in reality extraordinary. So are these people ordinary or are they extraordinary? These people in the Bible, are they ordinary or are they extraordinary? Of course, the answer is yes. They are ordinary, extraordinary people and the same is true for you. Look at the last phrase of 1 Peter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Who's that? Who are all of you in Christ? That's you, that's, that's me. It's Christ who is extraordinary, and it is our union to Christ that unites us to the extraordinary. So I can say this about you. In one sense, you're not famous. Even if one of you grows up to be really famous in the eyes of the world, you'll be forgotten in centuries. You're not famous. And then in the other sense, I could say you're eternally famous because you are in Christ and you are famous in the heavenlies. I could say you're not important. You're not. You're not that important. I'm sorry. And then I could also say you are eternally important because you are in Christ. I could say you're not significant. You're not that big of a deal. But in Christ, you are eternally significant. So what happens is followers of Christ, when we follow Christ, um, what it does is it hallows the mundane. It sanctifies normalcy. And this is a big part of the invitation to follow Christ, if you're considering that is it's to leave aside. Look, you and yourself are never going to be that special, that famous, that important. But I know you long for that. And I don't want to shame your long to be famous. Did you know that? I don't want to shame your long for, longing for significance. That's in you because you're creating the image of God. But here's the thing. You'll never be that for yourself. You'll never be enough for yourself. You'll never be famous enough. You'll never be important enough. You'll never be significant enough. But Christ invites you into himself and into his greater story where people like me who just aren't that big of a deal become eternally big deal. So, ordinary, extraordinary, 
people. You also here have a calling that is both ordinary, extraordinary as well. well. Let's look at that, the ordinary, extraordinary commands. There are two final commands for us in the letter of 1 Peter. And just, just, again, they are remarkably ordinary. The first is in verse 12. Peter says, I write, um, exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God. That this there is a general word. It doesn't have a specific antecedent from a verse before or anything like that. It's just talking to the whole letter. Um, Just a general word speaking to the fullness of the gospel that he has unpacked in the letter. Saying, he's saying, this gospel that I have declared to you in this letter, it is the true grace of God. And then this is his command. Stand firm in it. Meaning, don't abandon the gospel. Hold fast to your faith in Christ. Cling to Jesus. Persevere. Stand firm. Do not fall away from Jesus. Now that seems like a pretty basic command. Right? I mean, okay, yeah. Stand firm in grace. Hold on to Jesus. Don't abandon the faith. However you want to say it. Wouldn't you expect Peter to end his letter to exiles with something a bit more radical than hold on to the faith? Well, what we see as, an, as ordinary is, in actuality, quite extraordinary. When you consider the world that is hostile to Jesus and his followers, we've talked a lot about that in 1 Peter. When you consider the enemy that prowls around seeking to devour us, we talked about that last week in Peter, 1 Peter. When you consider our own proclivity towards giving into temptation, our own struggles with sin, we talked a lot about that in 1 Peter. When you consider our doubts, when you consider our fears, when you consider the cross that is following Jesus Christ, I'm surprised any of us make it. In fact, none of us would make it were it not for the preserving grace of the Holy Spirit inside of us. A seasoned saint who has spent a lifetime, to use the language here, standing firm in the faith, standing firm in the grace of God and prepared to face death, trusting Jesus, a seasoned saint like that is a miracle. I know, I know, and I I like that I get to say it to this crowd. I know that there is a temptation of the younger generation with all of your zeal and all of your new ideas and all of your idealistic visions to look at an older generation Um, of Christians with a they-just-don't-get-it attitude. Um, But I want to invite the younger among us to look at the older among us and marvel at their perseverance. Let's see if you're walking with Jesus in 50 years. Because a lot aren't. I can tell you names of people who graduated my seminary class, guys who are training to be pastors, and 15 years ago, I graduated, and I can just give you name after name of people who have abandoned Jesus and are done with the faith. There is a reason why the Christian journey is referred to as perseverance, because that's what it is. It is a perseverance. I know it's being sold by many to you as, um, as a um, prosperity, as a, your best life now. I think it's an actual title of a book. That's best-selling Christian book in America. Your best life now. That's lying to you. This is the work you would. You should never choose this if it didn't lead to an eternally best life to come. This is a terrible life now. This is the cross of Jesus Christ now, and it is a 
glorious and marvelous thing to persevere to the end. The second command we see here, which is the last command of 1 Peter, is seemingly unremarkable as well. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. In that culture, families kissed one another uh, throughout the entirety of their life. They didn't do the get in the teenage phase and Ooh, I don't want to do this anymore. They, they just kept kissing their whole life. And, uh, but the New Testament church did something really audacious um, and very significant. Uh, they began to kiss each other like families kissed each other. Um, in fact, as a part of their worship liturgy, um, where they would exchange kisses like we exchange the greeting of peace. Think about implementing that next week. So come back for that. And the, statement, and the statement that they were making was this, that my true family, my true family is my church. And in fact, my biological family makes me choose between them and the family of God. I will choose the family of God. And the whole line of thinking, this covenantal, familial love is bound up in Peter's command to keep kissing each other with this family kiss to greet one another with a kiss of love. Peter is saying, love each other like family. Now again, that seems on the surface like an ordinary command. I mean, that's Christianity 101, right? I mean, that's, if you don't know that about Christians or the Bible, then, then, then what do you know? I mean, that's, that's pretty basic. You gotta love, right? You gotta love each other. You gotta love your neighbor, all these different things. That's pretty basic. But if it's so basic, then why are we so bad at it? And we're so bad at it because it's so hard. It's an ordinary command. It is extraordinarily difficult. When you consider, again, just consider the selfishness that is in this room combined with the preferences and wants and agendas that are in this room combined with the proclivity toward distrust and gossip and slander and bitterness and anger that is in this room. You know, people get amazed when churches split. I get amazed we go a week without splitting ourselves. To love one another is a very ordinary command, but it is an extraordinary command to obey because I'm difficult to love. And I have to ask you to love me. And guess what? You're really difficult to love. But we have to love you. And so... Peter, like a savior before him, who ended his life by saying, it all comes down to this, I want you to love each other. He ends his testimony to exiles saying, I want you to love each other. So at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, Peter ends his letter to us exiles by saying, don't give up your faith and love one another. Isn't it remarkable how unremarkable that is, which makes it remarkable. What do we do in exile? What are our closing charges, Peter, after all that's been said and done, been such an intense, dramatic, I mean, persecution and suffering and devil and all of these things we looked at, the intensity of it is so dramatic. How's it going to end? I want you to not give up the faith and I want you to love each other, which is essentially what Jesus did in his exile. He persevered. He held fast in the faith. He did not give up even when tempted to do so by the devil, even when tempted to abandon the plan in the last hour of his suffering. He did not. He stood firm in the faith and he chose to love you with a familial love. He chose to love us as brothers and sisters. 
So if you call a life of faithfulness and love boring and ordinary, then you're going to have to call the life of Jesus boring and ordinary, which it was not. It was extraordinary. I began by asking you about your day on September 11, 2011, by way of a very brief, very brief application. I'm done. I want to close by asking you about your day on uh, June 26, 2017. What do you got going on tomorrow? Unless something crazy happens, when t then tomorrow will just be another ordinary Monday, uh, soon to be forgotten like every other Monday, just another day in exile. But here's what I want you to see. If tomorrow you do not abandon your faith in Jesus Christ, and if tomorrow you choose the burdens of love for others, then the ordinary Monday will be an extraordinary day. Let me pray. Lord, help us to be faithful in, in the simplicity and mundane nature of these callings. Help us to see ourselves as normal and that being okay. Help us to see our Christian faith as hold on to the faith and love each other. And it's really that simple, and that's okay. Help us to be faithful in the mundane, Lord. Um, we need your help to do that, and you have given the sacrament, which is a demonstration of your faithfulness, which is a demonstration of your love for us. Lord, it convinces us. Um, that you love us this way, and it, and it strengthens us to love this way. So strengthen our faith and empower us to love as we have been loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.